Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at propellermag. Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast's success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Between the Covers, or to davidnaman.com slash support, and give your support, and enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, writer, visual artist, fabulist, and absurdist Jesse Ball. Ball is the author of 14 books, including six novels, multiple collections of poetry and prose, a book of drawings, and a pedagogical monograph. He's the recipient of both the National Endowment of the Arts and the Guggenheim Fellowships, the winner of the Plimpton Prize for his story, The Early Deaths of Lubick, Brennan, Harp, and Carr, was shortlisted for the Young Lions Fiction Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for his breakout novel, Silence Once Begun, and was longlisted for the National Book Award for his novel, A Cure for Suicide. 2016 proves to be a busy year, if not for Jesse Ball himself, at least for his readers, with three books coming out in quick succession. The Deaths of Henry King, published by Uncivilized Books, is co-written with writer and past Between the Covers guest Brian Evanson, Together, they depict the seven dozen deaths of the hapless Henry King, deaths that are illustrated with homicidal glee by the comics artist Lily Carre. Notes on My Dunce Cap, published by Pioneer Works Press, is a text for teachers who want to reconsider hierarchy in the classrooms and draws on the unusual classes Ball teaches to writers at the Art Institute of Chicago, classes whose topics range widely from courses on lying, on lucid dreaming, and on walking, among others, and How to Set a Fire and Why is Jesse Ball's latest novel, just out from Pantheon. Lucia, the book's narrator and teenage protagonist, lives in a converted garage with her broke, eccentric aunt. Her father is dead, her mother in a mental institution, and Lucia is making her way through the world with only a book, a Zippo lighter, and a pocket full of stolen licorice, and a desperate desire to join the secret arson club at her school. Booklist and its starred review says readers will share Ball's adoration of this incisive and valiant young survivor from whom life cruelly subtracts nearly everything but her incandescent intellect, 
blazing wit and radiant sense of justice and publishes weekly in its starred review adds, Lucia details a philosophy that smartly parallels the novel's own, namely that writing literature is, like arson, an act of creation and destruction. How to Set a Fire and Why is a song of teenage heartbreak sung with a movingly particular sadness, a mature meditation on how actually saying something, not just speaking, is what makes a voice human. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jesse Ball. Thank you. Let's start with the with Lucia's attraction to fire. What is it in 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 the novel that you think is compelling to Lucia about fire? I think there are many weapons, many different kinds of weapons that a person can have and use. Many of those weapons are masculine, like a sword or a gun. I think fire is an ungendered weapon. You know, it's a weapon that's equally equally ready for use by man and woman. Um, and I think fire is a, a, a tool also for a person who is weak, who's confronting large odds, because it multiplies itself naturally. Hmm. Well, it's one, one of the things that makes this destructive um, weapon-like quality of, of fire more complicated in the book is she her, her last object of of her father is her, her father's zippo lighter so in in a in a strange way this potential for destruction is also seeming seemingly also a gesture of love and of grief and of mourning um and there's a flip side to fire in general don't you think it certainly has a positive aspect as well yeah. yes yeah that's true prometheus brings it to us allows us to create civilization so fire both creates civilization and then destroys it and also is the place where we would tell our stories yeah yeah and make our food edible for that matter (laughs) so tell us a little bit about the arson manifesto that lucia is is interested in developing what are what are some of the political dimensions of the arson manifesto for for our protagonist in the book well in the earlier in the book she reads a pamphlet that someone else has written and that pamphlet, I don't know how much um, anarchist literature that our listeners are are, um, are used to reading, but there's a, there's a good amount of it that is quite dry and boring in a way. Um, a certain amount of anarchist literature is uh, attempting to interact with political tracts and political theory, you know, whether it's Marxist or capitalist or um, or whether it's Hegel or whoever it's interacting with a literature that is I don't want to say dry because those those works are remarkable also but at least you could say not inherently practical not inherently available for use and this is an an interesting idea because you wonder what the ultimate what the ultimate point of the text is. Is it to create an academic dispute that will bring no no change, you know? So Lucia, at any rate, she reads this, and she feels it to be a very inherently masculine kind of text, you know, in the sense that it's a text that is made for someone who is attempting to, to rise within a framework that is a masculine framework, the framework of academia. And she wants nothing to do with that, so she rewrites her own pamphlet as a, a smart, proud young woman. And that pamphlet is inherently and entirely practical, you know, a practical anarchist, arsonist pamphlet, how to set a fire and why. And it feels like you you'd mentioned earlier that one of the aspects of fire is giving... Um, more power to the small against the large, or in this case, a child against a, a large institutional structure. And there's, there feels to me like there's a strong anti-institutional or anti-hierarchy uh, thread through a lot of your work, um, including your, your new book on pedagogy, um, the failure of the town's justice system in, in silence once begun, uh, the unjust social systems in the curfew, the bureaucratic system in the cure for suicide, and then there's also something you once said about teaching, that the most dangerous person in your life is someone who teaches you something. 
because if you aren't careful, they can determine how you use the thing they teach you. Can you talk more about what compels you to inquire and interrogate around uh, power structures and, and, and leveling them in a, in a way? I guess my whole life I, I've resented these structures, and it seems like, well, there are two things that you can do in writing. One is to to say something with the form of what you're saying, and the other is to say something with the content of what you're saying. And so as a lover of, of books and a lover of human thought, I attempt to have the the form what you could imagine to be sort of the ghost of my thoughts, the outline of the thoughts as it, as it flows, be something that I don't want to say it's instructive for people because I, that's not the relationship I want, but at least company, you know, have the form itself, the manner of speaking, the manner of saying things be company for, for other people. But then there's the content as well. So the question is, what what should the content be? And I think content... It's not completely arbitrary, but to a certain degree, it doesn't always matter. You know, if you really adore the way that someone thinks, whether they're talking about, uh, you know, asparagus or motorcycles, whatever it is, it's just <laughs> pleasant to listen. You know, if you're if you're fond of them. Right. Um, however, in our in our society, our current civilization, our epoch, there are lodestones and things, um, points of confluence that seem to be more curious, more um, possessive of meaning than other things. And one of those is the, the dispute of hierarchy, I think. Uh, many discussions lead there. So I think the theme you identify is one that certainly does rise up again and again uh, in the books. Yeah. And, and you've also talked about the problems with institutions being that uh, no one voice should be greater than another voice. An author should strive not to be persuasive. Yes. Um, that a single point of view in a story is often too persuasive. But yet this book has a single point of view, generally speaking. Um, tell us how you, n you navigate that in, in the new novel. It does have a single point of view, but I, I think as a, as a teenager and as a person who is, I guess, in, inherently embodies the... the internal conflict that we can assume exists in a teenager. Lucia's account and her uh, her desperation, her drive, disputes itself to some degree. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's true. Yeah. Well, you mentioned form also, and another way in which your writing feels anti-institutional is how it plays with traditional forms, I think. Um, the book, for instance, incorporates Lucia's manifesto. It also includes a booklet of descriptions she makes for her aunt a series of predictions of what will happen in the future, um, some garden diagrams, a series of letters, and it is all written in a modular style where white space is, is a presence on, on the page. Despite all of this formal playfulness, in ways that I think distinguishes the book from, say, 99% of the books you might randomly pick off of the shelf, um, you push back against the notion that your work is experimental. So I would love for you to, to lead us through that. Uh, what, why does experimental feel like the wrong term for, for a book that is so uh, playful and unusual compared to, say, the average, average book you might find? Well, I think the thing, to, to a certain degree the term experimental might be applied to something that where there's there's large stakes involved and something is is making a demand on the reader that says the read he or she uh, the reader as 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 he or she reads the book will in, will in essence need to redefine like substantially how how they understand the formal contract of what it is to read a book, you know, that would be something that's experimental. And I think, on the contrary, many of the decisions that I make in my, um, in the writing of my books are made in view of the fact that in our contemporary time, people's attention, it's diffuse, there are many things trying to, um, you know, it's a battle just to get someone to pay attention for five minutes. So I think many of the decisions that I make in the books are made in service of 
a hope that the book can simply be read quickly and that it will effortlessly sort of enter the reader. And then once it's inside, sort of like a Trojan horse, will dispute things that they th think or feel. And ultimately, you know, one thing or the other will, will come to primacy. That's fine. But not actually that it be difficult to read in the first place. And so I think there's been a, a debate that has raged with some of the earlier books about whether the books are experimental. And in fact, the techniques that are used in them are quite old-fashioned. Uh, like almost none, none of them have I invented myself. And I think it's more, it demonstrates just the, the paucity of the contemporary literature landscape, which is, I don't know, I don't want to say largely full of garbage, but publishers, <laughs> publishers like really try to, to redo things that have recently been big successes. And many people think that, I think, I think it has to do with the, we have this feeling in, in our society that because technolo technology is, um, there's there's progress and whatever who, who I can't remember the guy's name the, the law about processors doubling in speed every so often um, people feel like there's a really a teleological process towards some great end where you know like these uh, fools who think that we're gonna enter robots and live forever or whatever you know with our minds um, that 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 there is always progress in every field but if and this just isn't really so in literature at, at all there is no progress in literature or or really in in thinking if you if you read it just means that people haven't read the works of you know great works of classics because if you read herodotus you see this is a brilliant person no one's thinking better than that now you know it's it's totally silly and anyway to think better would would probably it would necessitate an evolutionary change in the human brain, and there hasn't been enough time for that really anyway. So, I don't know. I, I disparage that whole line of thinking. But in yeah. terms of in terms of the book specifically, your question about um, the I'm not sure exactly what you, how, how you would say the the piecemeal nature of the narration. It's sort of the only way that I can do it. I, I to to write. You know, page after page, um, where each page is just completely dense with text. It seems like then, within your sentences as they flow on, you need to affect some space in order to have to give the reader the time to absorb things. Rather than doing that, I find I would like to create a unity with the disparate materials, mm -hmm. and then at the same time allow that space naturally. Yeah. Kate, you just tuned in. We're talking today to the author, Jesse Ball, about his latest book, How to Set a Fire and, and Why. You've, you've said, um, not related to this book, but it feels apropos, um, you've said that your central principle of writing comes from the writer, Daniil Harms, who said, uh, a poem, if thrown at a pane of glass, should break the glass. Tell us, tell us what you mean by that. Essentially... There should be something staggering in a piece of writing. It should, it shouldn't be. As I was saying earlier, it shouldn't be like difficult to read in, in some tiring way. Like it's difficult to dig a, a, you know, a grave. It shouldn't be difficult like that. But it should be difficult in that it forces you yourself to change your ideas about the world, because. I don't really believe in being entertained or in entertaining oneself. I think it's much more pleasurable, and inherently. Um, you know, a mode of contentment to go through life dynamically altering who you are and how you feel about things. And that has to be done through collisions and catastrophes. And so those collisions and catastrophes can be evident in the work that you read, the things you read. So with that harm's quote, you yourself are the window that's being shattered by the poem. Hmm. In your previous novel, A Cure for Suicide, people are willfully erasing their memories and there's a bureaucratic system of forgetting. But love sort of screws things up. It feels like love becomes the thing that dismantles the system or, or breaks the glass in, in that novel the way that fire does and how to set a fire and why. Um, in, in addition to the literal fire in your new novel being that force, there's also the motto of Lucia's, an ethos of earnestness, um, a saying that she repeats to herself, don't do things you aren't proud of that in a way feels like a, another force of equalization. Um, 
in the aim for generosity rather than recognition. You've said that you've said before that simple direct speech connected to the heart is a political act, and Lucia seems to strive for this in the book. And I was wondering if you felt like that was a shared ethos, um, if you shared that ethos as a writer. I definitely believe in forthright speech, although of course I would say it's not the the simple direct speech or just action in general, because uh, speech is even less important than. I mean, speech considered as action is where it becomes valid, um, just as um, action itself is inherently valid. But many speech can often be just deceptive, uh, dissimulating, and in, in such cases, it's sort of in its well. It's so hard to. Anytime you want to say something, the the opposite immediately proves to be true. Um, it's very difficult to speak about anything. Well, let's. But, but um, I, I think, uh, I think that for her, for Lucia, um, she's attempting to speak in a world the outlines of which she's only beginning to understand, and so the way in which speech is a possessive action, it's it's possessive because it's attempting to enforce a vision of the world that you are are contemplating. Um, uh, that's a that's a fallacy because that world doesn't exist except to you. Yeah, it would be an interesting to maybe pivot to um, your course on lying. I would I'd be interested in hearing um, what motivated you to teach the course and what you saw as the purpose in relationship to this other ethos of of forthright direct speech um, and how you hold those two together. Well, I think a lie can can be forthright. You know, it, it's just a matter of. You have a belief or, or a bet, a wager on what a situation is, and then you have a bet about engaging the situation with words, like what will come about because of that. And so to to say something that is uh, factually, obviously more, more true, like there is a turtle, you know, that's one way of affecting the situation. But if there's no turtle there and you say there is a turtle, it's not it's a, it's a lie in in one sense, but also it, it could be an existential statement. There's so many ways that things can go, and it, it's it's essentially a bet about what how the room will change once you've said the thing. Hmm. So I think the main the main truth about falsehood in our society is that there's a group of people, which is people with wealth. And people who control um, Congress and political affairs and corporate affairs, and they can lie as much as they want and say whatever they want, and then their right to do so and what it means for them to do so is protected, you know, by this system of courts. Of course, if you're just a poor person, anything that you do is deemed a, like a malicious lie and held against you forever. So it's it isn't the um, it isn't even Lying that consistently is is thought to be wrong. Lying is not the thing that's outlawed. It's being poor. That's what's outlawed. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things that you portray in 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 the new novel is an actual English class, um, and it feels like English classes. I'm guessing in your mind um, share some of the qualities of fire. They have the potential to be wondrous and <laughs> the potential to be very damaging to the people in them. Um, I was hoping you'd be willing to read uh, the two sections of the two short sections on the English class that Lucia's in. I should say also to our listeners that there are some parts in here that are funny, so they can they can be prepared to laugh wherever it is that they're listening um, if if they want to. They don't have to, but sometimes it's hard for people to know when something is supposed to be funny, at least in my work. So I give you my permission. <laughs> English. In English class, the teacher, Van Doyne, announced that we were going to do a creative writing module. Someone asked what that was. The teacher said he was going to teach us to share our thoughts and ideas in fiction. A bunch of the kids got really stressed out, I guess because they think that their thoughts and ideas are completely worthless. Ordinarily, I would stick to the party line and say that everyone has useful stuff to say. But this group of kids, I don't know. 
I think probably they were right to be stressed out. So Van Doyne had everybody take out their laptops. If you don't have a laptop, he gives you a block of paper. One girl, Maya, has no laptop because she's broken three of the school laptops. She takes them to the fourth floor bathroom and throws them out the window. No one knows why she does it, but when she does, she gets a lot of credit from everyone. It's really funny. She pretends it's an accident each time, but she still gets in trouble. So Maya and I got blocks of paper, is what I'm saying, and everyone else had a computer. Van Doren reads to us from an essay by some Pulitzer Prize-winning author. He said, To enter the sweet land of fiction, think about something outside of yourself. Then imagine yourself inside the thing. Then that is a story. I have no intention of entering the sweet land of fiction, wherever that is. We worked on the stories for three days in English class. On the third day, we had to give ours to the person next to us to read. I gave mine to Grace, and Grace gave me her laptop with the story open on it. It's not really done, she said. Mine is, I think. Grace's story is called Dolphin Frenzy. It's about a dolphin named Reno who wants to go to the big city. I'm not kidding. You can't make this stuff up. The problem with Grace's story is that after the first page, on which we get a bunch of Reno's thoughts, most of which are small-town thoughts and thoughts about swimming, Grace runs out of steam. She starts just putting in facts about dolphins. I don't want to accuse anyone of anything, but the language changes a little, so it seems like maybe she copied the quotes from somewhere. Here's a sample. Reno woke up late, and his mom was already setting the breakfast table he took off the sheet and got up and brushed his teeth. Got a run, Mom, he said, and got just to the bus in time. Some common dolphins are the common dolphin, Fraser dolphin, climbing dolphin, Pacific white-sided dolphin, and others. New dolphin species are discovered every day. If you can have a curved dorsal fin, you will, or else probably you will have a straight one. Watch out for the rough-toothed dolphin. They can reach 350 pounds. I told her it was great. Don't change a word. They'll tell you to change it, but you have to stand firm. She said my story was pretty good, too. I asked her why. Then she admitted she didn't like it very much. She was just trying to be nice. I said, that's okay. She should know I actually did enjoy her dolphin story very much. She asked if I wanted her to try again with mine, and I said no. She admitted she didn't really read it. I was playing with my phone, she said. Maybe I should put more animals in mine, she suggested. That's how she got hers started. English 2. At the end, Van Doyne had everyone read the stories out loud, which was really painful. When it got to me, I said I hadn't done it. Grace got a weird look on her face, but she kept quiet. She read hers, and she was honestly really, really proud in the way that she did it. I thought it was pretty beautiful that she could be so proud of such a terrible story. I'm such a coward, I could never have read my story to the class like that, no matter how good it was. So Grace is a little ways ahead of me on the path of life, I honestly think. After class, Van Doyne motioned me over to his desk. He said he was willing to give me some leeway because of my situation, but he would love to see what I wrote if I was prepared to show him. It's almost the worst thing when people are actually kind. It would be easier if they could be creeps all the time. Anyway... You're probably interested in hearing about my story, even if Grace didn't like it. My story was called, May I Sweep Your Front Step? It was about a woman who lives in a house. One day, a beggar comes and asks her if he can sweep her front doorstep. So she lets him. The story doesn't start there, though. It starts in the future, at this refugee camp. There's been a disaster. No one has a nice home anymore. But even in the refugee camp, there's stratification, so some people have tents and others don't. Outside one of the tents, there's this guy sleeping, and he occasionally gets up and mimes sweeping the ground in front of the tent. Every now and then he lies down and sleeps some more, and then gets up and repeats it. Someone asks the woman in the tent why he's doing this, and she says many years ago she lived in a wealthy house in a big city, and a man came to her house, a beggar, and he wanted to sweep her front step. She could tell he was a suitor in disguise and wanted to marry her. But she let him sweep the front step, and she was kind of tricky. So whatever stratagems he would use to try to get more out of her, she would always reply with something more clever, and he would have to keep sweeping. 
Eventually, they grew old. And the disaster came, and she ended up in the camp with her tent, and the beggar shows up again. He doesn't even have a broom. But still, he sweeps the ground in front of the tent, this time with no broom. He doesn't even have a name anymore. He's utterly become the costume he's wearing. So that was the story. But it was much better in reality because it's all matter of fact. The woman doesn't see anything strange about any of it. Also, there's this thing about what the service actually is. What is it that the beggar is providing? What is he taking? It's pretty hard to say who's winning. You've been listening to Jesse Ball read from his latest novel, How to Set a Fire and Why. The phrase, he has utterly become the costume he was wearing, it reminds me both of other things that Lucia does in the novel and some things you talk about in your in your pedagogical book, The Notes on a Dunce Cap. Um, Lucia, on the eve of lighting a fire with plans to disappear and start anew, she wonders about who she will be next, what identity she will create for herself. And, and she even ponders about the Tibetan notion of bardo, where um, souls choose their next identities. Um, and another point in the book, Lucia says she's going to try on different identities until she finds one that she can be okay with, even though um, you don't know in the time whether you will be okay with it or not. And then in Notes on a Dunce Cap, you say that the matter of teaching can be made alive through the pageantry of theater, uh, through role-playing, um, that theater is a useful tool for disputing hierarchy. Um, can you talk a little bit about the way you introduce role-playing into uh, teaching uh, writers how to write? Well, I wouldn't say specifically that the, I wouldn't say specifically that the classes are for writers or about writing. It happens that the the, the place where the where the classes are given is an, is an art school, and many some of the students at least are are writers. But I think the the classes are equally valid for anyone and for um, anything anything at all that you might be doing, because the point is more to deeply engage with being alive, you know, and not in some kind of a you know cultish way or some sort of new age self improvement way. Just there's there's an enormous amount of empirical rational work behavior that can permit people to just see and feel more to to not. Um, not be allowing oneself the, um, I don't know, there's these little obeisances where you, that, that it's possible to make where you, you give up a little, you know, and you just don't have to do that, you know. So in the, in the classes, I guess, the attempt is just to feel more. And as you say, there are these costumes and there's, uh, there, there, the theater is a tool. So I guess when I began to teach, I thought the class is a place that I hate. I've always been a terrible student. Um, I've never wanted to be in a class. I've never wanted to be in school. And why is that? What ways could the class be made more pleasant? Why does it have to be someplace that you don't want to go to? You know. And I think the the theatrical, when it's alive, is a matter of play. You know, a matter of um, mimicry, a matter of uh, spontaneous action. Or, or of um, something spontaneous in so much as you recall some memorized thing, but you don't know how it will alter you in the moment of recitation, you know, like great Shakespearean actors or something. And so I guess the question that occurred in my mind was why couldn't this the theater be a part of the, you know, everyday class behavior? One thing is that... Uh, we like to think of ourselves as individuals. You know, I'm. I have this name, and I have this history, and I'm this person. And to some degree, that's useful if you're if you're a little counter, like um, you know, in in like a, after World War One or something, you'd have all these piles of gold in a bank, and one would say, you know, the United States, and it would be the, the reserves of gold that the U.S. has, and another would say Germany, and it'd be the reserves of gold. And then if the if the gold moves from one country to another, they just move the counter to a, another bigger pile of gold or something. So your name is kind of the counter on this like this pile of materialism that you've constituted in the course of your life, and that's that's um maybe makes it obvious that you're not freed by your name and you're not freed by your circumstances, you're actually inhibited by them. And how beautiful to be able to be free 
by assuming a different role, by being something that you haven't, you know. So this is true even in terms of if I give you the job in the class of handing out napkins, all of a sudden you're much happier than you were two minutes before. Two minutes before you had the responsibility of being a person um, consistent with the person you've been for the previous 48 hours who has to do this, has to behave this way. Now you can just be a napkin vendor, you know. <laughs> like, who knows? There's all kinds of possibilities, you know. Um, and not that there are many napkin vendors in my class, but there, there are roles. And by inhabiting these roles, you become free to experiment and be playful and not be held to being who you have been. And that's a really wonderful pedagogical tool. So one of the self, one of the pre-existing hierarchies that role-playing is in, interrogating or bringing down is the person's sense of their own self. Absolutely. Yeah. I love what Lucia does at the very beginning, which sort of unsettles the reader, uh, where she says, um, you are just a construction. You're helping me put things in order. You are my fictional audience. And as such, I appreciate you very much. It is as if she's flipping the power dynamic entirely, and we're in her imagination from the get-go in the book. That's it's quite wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was curious about your choice to have a protagonist who has no parents, whose guardian, her aunt, is a, is a combination of approving and permissive. So in a, in a sense, um, you've created a character with no... Um, pressures from above, a child character with no pressures from above. And is that at all related to what you're going for in the pedagogical approach to and you with this emphasis on playfulness and imaginative role playing, um, like to to find the child self um, or remove the pressures of 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 the things above the child self? It's an interesting question. I think there's there's something in it that would seem to intimate that I'm making decisions uh, like with uh, like forecasting as I'm as I'm writing, and I think there there aren't very many pl like plans. It's more that the um, when I, I I'm surprised constantly as I'm writing by what it is that's appearing, and I don't really know so much. I make some decisions in my mind about the structure of the book, but then the content, I'm steering the boat towards avenues of possibility. So I'll, I'll know it's possible to write something down, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Lucia or vis-a-vis -vis the whatever other um, narrator or um, character or narratorial voices in a different book based upon it seeming it seeming to be that there are greater possibilities evident in the structure of the book and in the narration of the text by putting this sentence down rather than another sentence. And that's what allows me to just write the book and f feel good about it, you know? Yeah. And be married to it in both in its successes and in its, its errors. It's a kind of um, a delineation of possibility. And then I like to end the book when there are there's still some ambiguity left, yeah. you know. Um, I think. I think that. I would hope, for for people who are, um, attempting to be, children, in this pedagogical way that you speak of, you know. Uh, one wants to have the, the valor and the. Um, you don't want to be inured to things. You want to have uh, a fresh, a fresh vision of each thing that you see. Um, this Buddhist kind of sight—that's the nature of of being a child that you want to reinvigorate your life with, as at, at at any age, you know. But what you don't want is to have. There's something that is difficult about being a child, which is that you don't have very much agency, and then there's just a lot of fear. And a lot of that fear comes out of not knowing about the world, but some of it comes out of just making an honest assessment of the world and realizing it's, you know, it's it's rational to be afraid of many things as a child. Um, and I think the thing that as an adult later, you know, some kind of wisdom, wisdom is usually married to foolhardiness, but there, there's a kind of wisdom in realizing that you will have to take your blows and that most of them you'll survive 
until you don't. And then when you don't, it doesn't matter at that point anyway, you know. So you, you can be, you, you don't have to live in fear, essentially. This is something that children don't understand. So the nature of receiving childhood, a childhood vision into yourself as an adult and being like a child is to to have the sight of things for the first time, but without fear. Hmm. Could could you read the opening section for Notes on a Dunce Cap, your, your book for teachers and possibly future students? When it is possible for any of us to simply go and sit somewhere in the grass, and when it is such a delightful thing to do, to go and sit in the grass, whether by oneself or with others, then it is important to remember that any time we think about teaching, or indeed about any other activity, that we do it instead of sitting somewhere in the grass. We are passing up on the joy of solitude and all its virtues and pleasures. Therefore, it's crucial that what happens when we teach be of the same value as time spent alone. And that is true both for ourselves and for those we teach. If you ever find yourself feeling that the time is somehow a trial, that it is something to be endured, and that you would rather be alone, then perhaps something has gone wrong. It's likely time to reconsider such things as the space of the classroom and the costume of the teacher. By that I mean where and how you teach and whom you are when teaching. None of these things are fixed in stone. Perhaps some of you are saying, well, fine, that's all well and good, but how to construct an experience, any experience, that is the equal of solitude? How can a reasonable pedagogical situation even be created in the first place? The world is full of randomness, collisions, coincidences. Memory, sight, and fortune conspire, and so it happens that wandering about alone is utterly enchanting. How can we as teachers compete with the essentially riotous and fathomless fabric of basic existence? In essence, how can it be that we can even begin to assume this posture that we should be listened to, attended to, looked to? been listening to Jesse Ball read from his book, Notes on a Dunce Cap. You mentioned that you, you have a past of not, uh, have, uh, not a very fond memory of your past as a student. And I was curious, it, I'm imagining that this book of pedagogy and all of the different syllabi that you share in it and, and approaches and philosophies uh, happened th through a period of, of time of trial and error and experimentation. What was it like when you first started teaching um, did you assume the costume of of the standard teacher you imagined or experienced and it was disastrous and then you found your way out or, or how did that all start no actually the first the first class that i taught was this class online online so, yeah so i in 2007 i became a professor at the school of the art institute of chicago which was a very lucky thing because there are many institutions where the, you could say the, the pedagogy is more sternly overlooked, you know, but at SAIC the results are prized. I mean, you want to have the students be invigorated in their practice, and certainly there's a, it's a very it's a very professional environment in some ways, um, professional because. What's important is the professional effect of the the artists on the world that they enter. You know, not the, um, you know, some fatuous assessment of what the classroom looks like. You know? yeah. So, this is a very lucky environment to be thrust into for me because the it means that my syllabi could be strange and um, experimental. In this case, experimental is, is maybe a good word, although there has been a, just an enormous history of wonderful experimental pedagogy that my pedagogy maybe is, is more um, restrained than, you know, hmm. um, ways that people teach things to other people, just countless and endless. And it's a great, it's humbling just to think about all the things that people have done before, yeah. the beautiful ways that people have interacted with each other. I think one of the, the finest ways to teach is just to have people not even know that you're their teacher. And certainly in life, walking around, this is how you want to be. You want to be learning from everyone, essentially be 
the student of all the people you meet, I think. Hmm. But at SAIC, um, that first class, I it was a class online, and I was struck with this predicament that as a as a person teaching people who many of whom were writers my job was to improve them as writers but I felt if you're going to improve as a writer you just read many books you love reading the books you don't read books you don't love you read books you love you try to make yourself read difficult books that change you you write constantly maybe you show it to people maybe you don't you know there are many decisions to be made but all of that work is really something that a person chooses to do by themselves and for themselves so I thought, well, what is it that I can offer as a teacher? And for me, that was sort of structural reinterpretations of basic life experiences like walking, sleeping, lying. Yeah. And and then in the class, it isn't just, it's not just that I'm offering it, but it's that everyone in the class, all the students offer it to each other. It's a collective redefinition. You mentioned something that I love, the idea that one of the aspirations outside of the classroom and in is to become a student of everyone you encounter, uh, which reminds me of a section of, of Notes on a Dunn's Cap, uh, Guy Debord's Derivé. Could you, could you talk about what that is and, and how you utilize that with students? In the, in the walking class, one of the, some of the texts that we use are the situationist texts from, from France, like Debord's, uh, discussion of the of the derive and this is a a way of of way of utilizing a, a city so many of our institutions are i mean i guess he does say that you could do it in the country i think he says that at some point but it's largely a way of using a city so many of our institutions of higher learning are in cities and the city is a thing that is maybe not even used so well by by its occupants. You know, you, you live in a city, you live in a neighborhood, and you travel to the, the four places that you go to. And if you, you can actually just open your phone probably and see on a map, you know, it probably is already recording where you've been. You can just look at your passage for the last, you know, month or last year, and it will be this staggeringly pathetic, you know, line back and forth between these these four different places that you always go to. So part of the, the this is something that the situationists felt, they felt that you should just expand your your travels and your um, your notion of yourself to, to be a person who wanders randomly through the cityscape and is affected by it and changed by it and, and feels what it is. Um, they call this psychogeography, you know, feeling what the neighborhoods are, um, maybe without some kind of rational ascertainment, but a kind of irrational reception of the sensation of being a witness. And part of it is, is I don't know if it was for them, but I think in your, in your class, part of it is doing that without money or identification or um, any of the typical, or without a phone, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We've been talking today to Jesse Ball about his book, How to Set a Fire and Why, and his book, Notes on a Dunce Cap. So you have a reputation for writing your books very quickly. I've read that you wrote this latest novel in a couple weeks and that you write most of your novels in under a month. And I'm, I'm sure this is going to be dumbfounding to a lot of our listeners, as it was for me, to, to understand how that process works, since it's so different than, than the typical writer. Can you, can you invite us in a little bit into how the process of a book coming into being looks for you? Well, actually, this one was just about a week. A week. And many of them are the recent ones. I guess Cure for Suicide was a week. Um, the last one that took a while was, I guess, Samdi, Deafness in 2005. That was early on. That took a month. But mostly it, it's about a week because, it, I mean, anyone can type fairly quickly. And it's a matter of just setting setting the things down and accepting that other people might not like them. You know, you just uh, you set a sentence down and it should be um, the least that's possible to say. 
about the subject. So in this case, I hope I, you know, I have a blank page and I begin to enjoy Lucia's voice and imagine what that might be. And that imagination is vested in my, you know, physical form as I'm sitting at the at the desk with, or you know, in this case, it was a, a cafe on Clark in Chicago. And I'm sitting there and I feel some idea, some sentiment about a person, what they might say, and then the first sentence comes out. And that's the least that could be said in that voice. Um, in a way, it's the most that I could say fairly with the knowledge that I have at that point about who she is. I mean, nothing is known about who she is really at that time. But as the book progresses, there are more and more things that it's possible to say. And I just say them one at a time and continue on. And the feeling is that by progressing in as clear and open a way as possible, the reader will be able to receive the things similarly, just clearly. The, there's a clarity that's present in the works of like Richard Brodigan, who was always one of my fans for, I mean, I was always his fan, I'm poor man. Um, because of the clarity of his text, you can read uh, in Watermelon Sugar in, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, and then it's all there. It just feels so clear. You almost never have to reread a paragraph that he's written because his mind is just crystalline. You know, it's like mm -hmm. a diamond. And that's a quality that I wanted to have in a text that you could really read it effortlessly and receive it all. And I found that possibly a way to do that would be to write very quickly and to not take mistakes back, not take anything back, just have it be a clear, full picture of a moment of speech. And I've, I've read that you have a lot of friends who are classical pianists and that you, you uh, compare this weak, perf weak uh, creation of the novel as to a performance, a musical performance. Definitely. Can you talk a little bit more about that? In in classical piano, you know, now there there will be these studio performances where someone plays a piece, you know, some um, maybe some piece by piece by list, and they they play it and they play it many times, and then it's cut up, and all the best parts of all those performances are cobbled together to create something that note for note is absolutely perfect. You know, it's a perfect, there's no, there's no wrong note, there's no um, hesitancy of, of rhythm, or it's all perfect according to the way it, it ought to be. But then when you listen to it, it leaves you a little bit cold. And on the contrary, if you go and you see the same exact pianist um, perform live, this vivid, lovely thing will happen where the performance might be full of mistakes. There might be many mistakes in it, many wrong notes, and yet there's a line through it from the beginning to the end that addresses something deeper in the piece, you know. And so there's a question of um, when you cut something up and, and fix it, you're trying to move closer to some analytical picture of what the thing ought to be. You have to declare what the thing is that you're trying to reach and then move towards it and and possess it. And actually, really great things that people do are, are not done in this way because you don't know what it is. The, the pianist knows what they love and they know what they've felt to some degree in the past when they've listened to Liszt and when they've played Liszt. But then when they, they, they make the performance, they're moving into an uncharted territory even for themselves. They want to exceed themselves. Like a shaman, they want to, they want to go beyond the, the circle of the, the tribe and address the darkness, admit the darkness. And so it's always better to attempt something that at the moment of its... It's not to say that it can't be parsed and understood later, but at the moment of its creation, the person making it should not be able to understand it. Yeah. And if we were to extend that, that comparison to to your writing process and we look at your week of writing how to set a fire and why as the performance is there a period of rehearsal or some sort of contemplative pre-preparation period prior to you sitting down to the blank page well it's really just that there's there's a time my days and my life is it's pretty lazy i sort of wander around i think about things say um not purposefully but i just try to be 
human being and happy, you know, person. And I drink coffee. I have a dog. I go on walks with my dog. I read. I play the board game Go with people. I um, draw. You know, I do these things. And then every so often, usually about once a year, then I'll sit down and just write. Hmm. Yeah, but I think the writing punctuates my life and maybe my understanding of myself has wandered farther from something truthful or something um, something sharp, something incisive about who I am. And the writing of the book reacquaints me with my own ideas mm-hmm. by surprising me. I write something and I say, oh, is that what I think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that particularly spoke to me in your in your book of pedagogy was um, the importance of, not just the importance of experimentation, but one of the things that you sort of enforce in, in the culture of your classes is to not attack what seems ridiculous and uh, the importance of allowing for self-contradiction. And it reminded me of a series in The Atlantic where they asked writers to write about one of their favorite passages in literature. And you chose a passage from, a very famous passage from The Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll, uh, which is often considered nonsensical. But um, an interesting thing you said, you say that there's a lot of misunderstanding about nonsense, that nonsense is not the absence of sense, but something that operates at the edge of sense. What does that mean, to operate at the edge of sense? <laughs> it's a pretty suggestive thing to say. Huh? Um, well, there's a... You could think of the the state of understanding that's present in the world at any one time as being, as, as I was saying earlier, sort of like a, a boat and there's a tiller that can turn it one way or another, um, especially as regards your, your circumstance. Like we, we sit in a room and there's speech and the speech goes back and forth and things are said and there's maybe we're, we're trying to move towards some um, decision decision point about a particular thing. And then when you, when you say something, you can say something that is clear and obviously factual that is is um, immediately has an obvious bearing on everything. Or you could say something else that is it's difficult to understand exactly what it's meant by 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 what's said. But it could have enormous rhetorical value, you know. And so even the idea that a a factual clear statement is more functional. That even that is a fallacy, mm. you know. Um, but as regards the this the sense sense and nonsense, I think sometimes there's there's so many things that we want to say at the same time that the only way to say them is to have them be sort of wounded into each other yeah. to create some some mass, and then to trust that in its effect. Um, that which was once um, distinct and, and specific will reemerge. So in a way, um, saying nonsense isn't when you have nothing to say, but when you have, it's exploding with sense, yes. in a sense, that, um, all at once. And that's why it's difficult, because obviously Jabberwocky is, it's a great, it, there's no question that it's a great thing. The question is, why was Carol able to create a nonsensical poem that people love so much when hardly anyone else has been able to do it the same thing? Hmm. There aren't so many of these great nonsense poems. Right. And that's because it's, it isn't really nonsense, you know, <laughs> it's in, in the, the way that we take it to be. Yeah. yeah. Well, t- tell us a little bit about, I'm sure our listeners are curious about uh, lucid dreaming. Tell us a Tell us what you're doing with your students in a lucid dreaming class and and why. I know you've, you mentioned how you're not directly teaching people to write, but you're teaching people to become more interesting people. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about why um, engaging with dreams that way would make someone more interesting too. Well, there's a book that is going to come out also with, with uh, Pioneer Works next year, which is called Sleep Death's Brother. And that's a book about lucid dreaming. For, for children and also people who are incarcerated hmm. um, to people who are victims of their circumstance, you know. 
the circumstance of childhood and the circumstance of prison. But so they will, people can can read that book when it comes. There's no shortage of books about lucid dreaming. The one, this one is just very simple. It's very simple and clear. Um, I think if there's a question about why lucid dreaming would be useful in our in our present um, in our present epic. I mean, it's inherently it's inherently wonderful to lucid dream. It's like, why is it useful to to ride a bike to, down a hill? Because it just it feels wonderful. You feel alive. Um, so there's a a basic reason why you would want a lucid dream. But beyond that, to be engaged in almost any human activity is to first turn inward in order to turn outward. So you you turn inward to regain all things that you have known about the activity previously, whether it's woodworking or whether it's writing or whether it's um, acting or dancing or, you know, you in, in an inward motion, you recover the expertise that you have already previously embodied and then you push outwards with it and then the the art occurs. And this, this it doesn't need to be art. It could be plumbing. It could be, it doesn't matter. It could be, you know, sweeping. It could be driving a truck. Um, just... There's, there's obviously a, um, a marvelous excellence in every human activity. Um, even vile ones, even violence, there's every, every single one. You know, it's just they're all action, you know, without morality. And so the question is, to what degree is that inward, this, this library of things that's, that's held within you, to what degree is, is that, um, that library constituted by the strength of your belief in in an inward kingdom that that you yourself constitute and so i think the the problem one of the problems with uh, digital culture and celebrity culture you know magazines internet whatever it is is that it makes it trivializes a human life and it makes a, you just take a random person that person feels that what happens to Tom Cruise is more important than what happens to you know him or her and I think that imposition makes it harder for this random person to to construct this edifice within themselves where they're storing the beautiful things that they've learned the beautiful things that they've done and then makes it harder for them to act in a forthright way creating something beautiful no. So, the panacea for that is something like lucid dreaming, where by by saying what happens within my mind, and a dream, you know, is and and what actually it, it's very difficult to bring a dream out into the world. No one really cares. You try to tell someone about your dream, nobody really cares about your dream. You know, it's something that ultimately redounds on you. It, you you have it, and it stays with you. And if you focus on that as being important and focus on remembering your dreams and on feeling them and on seeing them more. And you get to a point where you could be writing down your dreams for, for two hours. You could remember so many dreams in a night, you know. And with lucid dreaming, you're able to make decisions, you're able to fly, you're able to, you know, all kinds of action can be taken in your dreams. There's an, in, an inner orientation where you're, you're turning your gaze towards yourself and strengthening your idea about what what your mind is and what you are as an organism relative to other organisms and other compounds, other things in the world, it makes it much more possible for you to be a person who's, who strongly gives connecting the past, what you have been, what you have known, what you have embodied to the future, which is the gift that you're making in action. Hmm. Well, you mentioned that this this book is coming out that you wrote on lucid dreaming next year, you also typically have other books already written in the pipeline, um, ready to, ready to appear in the world. Can, can you tell us about any others that are, are on the horizon? One that should come pretty soon is called census. And that's the first book that I've written, which has a character with down syndrome in it. My brother, Abram, who passed away now some years ago, many years ago, 
he had Down syndrome, and it's something I had never written about, and I really wanted to, but it's it's hard to because the um, a lot of the popular discussion or the um, popular rhetoric and dialogue about Down syndrome is victimizing, yeah. and so when something is so skewed, it's hard even to use the terms of that discussion to speak. Um, so I, in this book, I kind of had to create a paradigm within which it was possible to operate and speak about my love for him. And that's what, yeah, that's what that book is about. Wow. That sounds fantastic. And do you have a suspicion, um, what you might write about next (laughs) (laughs) or is that taboo to even think? Mm. No, I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I never know. I, I want to sit down not knowing that. Yeah. Well, it was was great having you on Between the Covers today, Jesse. Thank you so much. Your questions were wonderful. Thank you. We are talking today to Jesse Ball about his latest books, How to Set a Fire and Why, and Notes on a Dunce Cap. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>